Hi, this is Sarah Young from Changing Minds with Pick Up a Penny, and you're listening to the Neuro Noodle Network podcast. Thank you all for joining Neuro Noodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast, featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Jansen, Dr. Skip Wren, and a neurofeedback legend, Jay Gunkelman. This is an all star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. You can find Dr. Laura at Jansons.com. Dr. Skip can be found at drskipperin.com and Jay Gunkelman. Well, there's only one Jay Gunkelman on Google, but all the links will be at the bottom of the podcast. Sarah Young, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a real pleasure. I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of, the, of your podcast, to be honest, and uh, I've listened to everyone. So, uh, everyone? <laughs> are we getting less worse? <laughs> yeah, it could be like that. Um, well, actually, I recommend when I have clients or children, certainly parents who come with children, if uh, they have a diagnosis, diagnosis of ASD or ADHD or anything, really, I guide them to your podcast and I'll also guide them to specific podcasts for them to learn a bit of information that I think oh, will help them. Oh, perfect. If you can guide them to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, it really helps the uh, word get out there. Because if they can't can't hear us, we can't help them, Sarah. I'll tell them. I'll add that as a tagline. Okay. Now, Sarah, you're with, I'm trying to get this or changing minds with pick up a penny. I want you to tell us what that is. And then number two, Mary from Stens asked that we bring you on the show. How do you guys know each other? Those are my two big, big questions. So how do you know Mary, number one? Okay, okay, Mary. Um, well, it started, I'm, I'm a child and adolescent, specializing child and adolescent psychotherapy. I do a lot of trauma work and I also work a lot with children with a diagnosis of ASD and, um, and ADHD. And the, it just, certain and certain clients I wasn't getting they weren't getting what they needed from the therapy. I, I'm a, a trained in EMDR, but it just wasn't changing sometimes. Not all clients, certainly not all. And I started looking into neurofeedback. It took me about two years before I came across Mind Media. I'd looked at many different companies and organizations. And fortunately for me, they were running some training in the UK, the first time, as far as I'm aware. So I signed up having no knowledge. <laughs> at all and not really knowing what I was getting myself into and I ran London which is about 450 miles from where I live and it was in Camden lovely place in London and it was the four-day STENS training course uh BCIS accredited BCIA accredited Mary was just she was training she was doing the training and she was just so lovely but what I found I think it was well it was it was day three for me, there was just people in that room that just knew so much. And it was that feeling of being back at school where you I just understand. I was just really struggling. And the guy who was assigned to me and a few other people was just going too fast. And on the third day, I could feel the emotion coming in. I said, I've just got to go. So I spent an hour sitting in Camden Market, looking at the people wandering past, sitting crying. And uh, I thought, I just can't do this. Mary must have been told that I must have looked a bit upset before I left. And she rang me that evening and said, look, come in early tomorrow morning. 
let's give you some time. You'll be fine. Because she'd already spoken to me about, I went in in the morning and then she, she'd already offered to mentor me. And she said, look, I'll, I'll support you because I think you're going to be great. And uh, really the rest, that was two years ago. It's just gone from there. And she's just, I know one of you, I think it was Santiago said that Jay is his Mr. Miyagi. Well, that's who Mary is to me. Do you know, she's just wow. amazing. That's that's awesome. You know, I I don't know that feeling having gone through the class twice to to be overwhelmed with the information. I don't know what that feels like at all. And I haven't met Mary in person, but I I think she has more patience than uh, uh, John Anderson does. So I think you gotta. <laughs> hey, John, you hear that? <laughs> we're gonna. We're, we're going to get him on. We're going to get him on the show. So we're, we're ribbing him. That's how Dr. Lauren Skip and myself uh, know Mary through stents and the equipment yeah. and the courses and whatnot. And uh, just we went through through the route with John. We didn't do. Mary does the advanced uh, QEEG. Is that right? Advanced, yeah. But just, okay. Yeah. Changing minds with pick up a penny. What is that all about? Well, when I trained oh, about 15 years ago now, my first placement, I worked with a little girl who was three and a young boy with behavioral issues and a little girl with trauma. The service that came and then weren't really giving the children what they needed outside. I was on placement and uh, and I just thought, oh, something needs to change. And that was right back at the beginning of my training. So it was, uh, I decided that sitting in a classroom when it was make your decision if you want to do your MSc, I sat there, left school at 14 with no qualifications, but I sat in this room and I thought, right, and they went around the room saying, who's going to do yes, no, or maybe for their MSc, and I just put my hand up and said yes. I didn't have a clue how I was going to do that, um, but I, I was determined even at that point to start to make a change in our country within the mental health service. So after that, um, I did my MSc and then I thought people would start listening to me. But sadly, I was then told I needed a PhD. So I was like, oh, come on, <laughs> you know, one small step and all that. But um, so I started looking around. It took about two years and I got onto a PhD course. Well, at the university close to where I live. And they really loved the idea of changing the policy for early intervention for children. Three years into the training, I kept getting asked by parents, why isn't the therapy that you're providing available on the NHS? Why isn't this approach? Because I don't know what it's like in the US, but it's CBT is the main therapy of choice, really, within our services. And one size doesn't fit all, that's my belief. And it's the same as the brain, every brain is different and so is every mind. So you have to be able to work with what the child, how the child is and what's happening in their world, not just how. I kept getting asked this, so I thought, right, okay, let's let's start the campaign now. I had no intention until I finished my PhD, but I thought, right, okay, let's just do it. So my dad had cancer a few years ago and he used to pick up pennies and twos and fives that he found on the ground. And at the end of every year, he donated to cancer research. So he'd collect about 30 to 40 pound a year and he'd donate it. So I went to speak to him over a cup of tea and I said, right, dad, I've come up with this idea. If I ask everybody to pick up pennies that they find, we'll raise the money to open the first centre in the UK, the first purpose-built centre for children with mental health, having everything, neurofeedback, body therapy, you name it. And he went, yeah, that's a great idea. So um, 
that's where the name came from and it really started from there you know so I started asking people and did social media and asked if you find a penny will you pick it up and donate it and not just pennies but it can be foreign currency so we take foreign currency anything uh, in note form or penny form is absolutely fine we take it all I'm sure bitcoin yeah <laughs> Sorry, curveball. <laughs> is neurofeedback? People are more familiar with it in, in Europe than they are in the in the states. Is that true or no? Not at all in the UK. I mean, the, there are some neurofeedback practitioners, but I'm the same. I have about a couple of hundred and fifty miles. So, and the UK is very small, as you know. So, it's uh, there's not many in the UK, and. Only through word of mouth, uh, we just get referrals all the time now. So, but people want to know about it. Hence the reason I guide them to Neuro Noodle podcast and information like that, just so they can <laughs> they can learn about it and understand. And certainly from experts like yourselves to be able to to educate and understand. So all the time, certainly with um, sensory and brain issues, all sorts of issues. Dr. Laura, what do you have for us today? This is something new, a new segment. This will probably be more helpful on our YouTube channel that mm -hmm. is starting to slowly get going. What do you have for us today? Well, yeah, so this is new for us. And to be honest, not sure how, uh, how we're going to execute this. Because, right, yeah, when you're doing a podcast, it's hard to show graphics and things like that. But what I was introducing last week is, is, you know, what if we did some case presentations, you know, for the clinicians who are listening, you know, that had that thought. And then I know we also have, um, you know, parents and, and other people who are interested in receiving uh, neurofeedback. And, you know, we kind of toss around these, uh, uh, the, you know, the phrases, you know, uh, brain maps and um, you know, we talk about all the, the, you know, the geography of the brain and all those things. And, what I was thinking is, you know, we, we can maybe, you know, address both uh, parts of the population, the clinicians and the, the clients, um, and, and maybe kind of explain, you know, at a basic level, what, what are the patients looking at when they're seeing these brain maps? Um, you know, when we're using, you know, the, the, the lingo, you know, what is, you know, break down the lingo so people can understand. So, you know, obviously it's going to be difficult with podcasts, but as Pete said, you know, we do have, you know, tons of technology available. I have uh, streaming software and we have a connection with YouTube. So I was thinking maybe we can do live stream on YouTube or Facebook or something. Um, and so today I just kind of grabbed, I mean, to be honest, kind of the last client we saw here at, at my office, she gave uh, full permission to use her data, but we're going to, you know, still mask any identifying information. So we'll kind of keep it basic. But anyway, so I have uh, some raw data, Jay and all of us to look at, and, you know, we have other clinicians here. Yeah. And to kind of make sense of, again, on one hand, just be super basic and explain, you know, what we're doing, what we're looking at, and then we can make it more complex as we kind of talk through this. But yeah, I mean, just to kind of talk about the case in general and talk about, again, the lingo and breaking things down so it's understandable to everybody who listens. Yep. And one more thing, the uh, we're going to have those, those who are watching the stream or the recording, I guess it'll be recording this first time. There's, you know, obviously graphics and, you know, clinicians may tune into that because they get to see you know, uh, I have NeuroGuide, and I know Jay has a different software. Tune in and see what we're looking at, and not just the raw data, but we can turn these things into maps and 
and you know, kind of discuss the type of data we uh, we have available to you know talk to the patients. So the raw EEG that you should be able to see at this point on screen is in a linked ear montage, which means that all of the electrodes on the head are being referred to the ears. Well, hold on, guys. Just so you know, I'm not as good as a video editor as I am on the <laughs> audio. So for the YouTube audience, uh, when you say Sorry about the difficulty with the audio. I, no, I no, much better. This I'm isn't a linked ear montage. The FP1, FP2 are up in the front. All of the frontal electrodes are up at the top. The occipital electrodes at the back of the head are at the bottom. So this goes from the front of the head towards the back of the head. And everything is referred to the ears. And as we scroll through the data set, you may notice that um, there are times when the entire record has the same kind of a bump in it. Uh, the, this peak, the dip, uh, it's in the same polarity across the entire head. And that can't actually happen in reality. Uh, you, you have to add up to zero. Some go plus, some go minus. Uh, Gauss's law of electricity, it goes a long way back. Um, and what we basically have is, is a uh, you can see this wave is generally synchronized. And that's essentially something that tells us that the ear electrodes, which are common to all channels, have a signal in them. And as such, if we do the analysis with this electrode combination, we're going to get um, a, a result, but it may not be uh, the one we hope to see. Uh, I'm going to minimize this screen and pop up the maps that are created. Um, all of that data goes through uh, the Fourier analysis, which is a way to break the spectrum from the low frequencies to the high frequencies and show you how much energy is at what frequency. And with the linked ears, you can see we've got a, a, a peak up in the front, and that's mapped here at eight and a half hertz. And at 7.57 Hertz, uh, you can see where that content is distributed. And it, it looks like most of it's coming from the frontal midline. The, the trick is if you redo the electrode combinations to a Laplacian montage, which is a fancy uh, name, uh, uh, the mathematician physicist who discovered black holes a long, long time ago, basically uh, has uh, their math and physics applied to the EEG. This is the same exact data. And instead of seeing a peak at the frontal midline, you'll see the peak over on the side. What happens is that the content here was picked up by the ear electrode. It canceled itself because it's the difference between the two sites and it wouldn't be shown in the linked ears. So it canceled over here and it broadcast it where it wasn't, it's the difference. So if there was no content here and it was in the ear, suddenly we see it at the midline. The same exact data set, when you look at it now, has this right frontal finding. And in this elderly uh, person, and you know, uh, basically my age, uh, so I can call them elderly without too much of a, a a, a negative associated with it. Um, uh, this is probably a vascular change. The yellow band is called alpha, and uh, this peak 
is an alpha peak that slipped a little too slow. It's into the theta band. That happens with vascular change like ischemia, uh, which is a decreased perfusion in the area. Uh, so we've got a change in function right frontotemporally. The frontal area here is responsible for gating of impulses and emotions. So if you suddenly get the impulse to, you know, uh, whack somebody uh, for having said something and you think, well, he's bigger than me. If I whack him, I'll, I'll you know, I'll get whacked back or something. Uh, your gait here should tell you, well, it's not a good idea. So you, you don't do it. Um, you don't express something inappropriate in a social circumstance. The gate is working. But when it's not working, people become disinhibited and they start to have poor uh, affective gating. Uh, the te the uh, uh, temporal area a little further back perceives emotion. And if you can't perceive emotion, you don't perceive your impact on others, which makes your behavior not exactly fully appropriate either. There's some slow content, the delta dark uh, colors that you see here uh, that you don't see everywhere. This may be actually something that happened after a subtle uh, cerebrovascular change. Uh, you, th there may have been a, a, a small stroke or a TIA that's happened repeatedly. And uh, the delta is, is a, a change here uh, associated with white matter. Uh, the, the red peak that's slowed alpha is a gray matter uh, function. So we may be able to actually see this on an MRI because of the white matter involvement. Um, but it's a localized change and uh, speeding up the alpha is something we can do with neurofeedback. Suppressing the slow content is something we can do with neurofeedback. And you know, I, I used to not think that uh, white matter could be altered with neurofeedback, uh, but the data had to uh, convince me that I was wrong. Um, two publications from Montreal Neurological by Mario Beauregard uh, showed white matter and gray matter alterations after neurofeedback. Uh, and, you know, I should have known better at that point, but I'm a little thick in the head and it took a third uh, data point to finally convince me. Um, I saw the data that was uh, uh, created at uh, UC San Diego, uh, Dr. Jaime Pineda, uh, working with autism. They actually did diffusion tensor imaging, which is a, a fancy MRI technique to look at the white matter. And the white matter was sculpted by the neurofeedback. So uh, I used to say, well, you could change the gray matter stuff, but the white matter is what you, it's your wiring, it's what you got. Don't you know, just figure out a different way to work. But now I know we can actually change the gray matter and the white matter. And for this particular EEG, the electrode combination you're looking at changes the result. That doesn't always happen, but especially if you have a temporal finding uh, and the linked ears, you're gonna find that uh, that's a contaminated reference point and you, you have to switch your reference or switch your perspective to not have a contaminated uh, perspective. On that, on that note, um, Jay, can you, can you just discuss a little bit? I mean, I have an agenda with this question, but so you, you looked at the, the raw data and saw that the linked ears just didn't, didn't look right to you. Um, and so you switched over and, and used the Laplacian data instead. Yes. 
so I guess the question is, how do you know you explained that th there, there wasn't a, a net zero effect here, but without looking at the EEG, how would you know by looking at a mapping if you have the right data? You can't tell by looking at the map. You have to Thank look at the raw EEG. Yeah. And, and again, when everything is in phase, going all going plus or all going minus at the same time, that violates a basic law of physics, you know, Gauss's law right. of electricity. It's, it's, you know, impenetrability of matter is a natural law. Uh, try to walk through a wall sometime, you know. Um, you, you can't violate a natural law. When I see something that looks like a violation of a natural law, I know it can't be real. You know, having uh, worked in, in classical EEG for many, many years, you, you see the impact of the wrong montage uh, because people make the wrong conclusion. You know, if you think something is wrong at the frontal midline, you think, well, that's a singulate issue. And that's totally different than the, than the right frontal uh, area being disturbed. So the interpretation is totally different. And the, you know, the intervention, if you went just based on the QEG, you'd be treating the wrong location. It, it's, it's fine to look for the ring under the streetlight if that's where you lost it. But uh, if it's the wrong location, you're not going to find it there. So uh, we, we do uh, urge people to look at the raw EG first before you hit the analyze it button. Make sure you have the raw EG in a perspective that will give you the correct answer, uh, not uh, a false image. And you know, it's, it's basic neuroscience. It's kind of step one. Uh, look at the EG before you do the QEG. The QEG is the, an extension of the raw EEG analysis. And if you don't know raw EEG well enough to uh, see the perspective is wrong, you're going to make a mistake. This is basically what's taught, taught in uh, uh, courses that look at EEG and QEG. Uh, they, they, uh, they should get you to have the proper perspective on the EEG before you start to analyze it with the Fourier or wavelets or whatever form of analysis you end up using. I don't think you could emphasize that point enough, at least from, from my, you know, point of view, the imaging software, the, the, the mappings are, it, it's cool. Like it's really slick stuff, but it, it, it it's a way, you know, house, house of cards, if, if the EEG is not solid. So just again, re, to emphasize that the, yeah. that the raw data just needs to be assessed and yes. not to take away from the mappings, but there's nothing wrong with a symptom-driven approach to neurofeedback either. If you don't have the capability maybe of getting the raw EEG data, there's a lot of folks out there doing neurofeedback from symptom approach, symptom intervention, um, inter interview, presenting complaints, right? And, and you can go from there. You'll get quite a bit of good outcome from symptom-driven approaches. Uh, symptom-driven approaches and neurofeedback existed before QEG-driven approaches. Right. Um, the QEG-driven approaches simply increase the efficacy or the percent of the people that have uh, positive outcomes. Um, I actually had a, uh, one of my first clients uh, 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 opened the file drawer all the way up and pulled out four years of standard protocol. They were trained by Othmers and Lubars. And uh, they then compared that to two years of data that was done based on QEG with me. And they looked at the outcomes. 
So of the first four years, they threw away the first year of data, thinking it was their learning curve. As a therapist, they were getting better. So they threw out their first year of work and they analyzed three years, approximately 20 people a year, uh, ADD only. It was an ADD kids specialty practice. And they got 80% success using a soft criteria. The therapist asking, did you get something out of the therapy? Well, that's a little bit coercive, you know. Uh, uh, I'm a therapist. How how did I do? You know, well, they, they may not want to tell you exactly how it went because uh, you're asking about your uh, efficacy of your own work. Using that soft criteria, they asked clients, and the clients using QEG got a 90-10, not an 80-20, but a 90-10. So you cut the people in half that you didn't, effectively treat. But I also asked them, you know, let's go back and ask a different question. Instead of a soft criteria, did I get something out of the therapy? Let's use a very strict criteria. I mean, a very strict criteria. Did you get rid of the diagnosis of ADD? Are you undiagnosable now? And we did some training. Was the thing we trained changed? Was there a contingent change associated with the training? And that's, a, that's an incredibly strict criteria. Uh, using that criteria, the standard approach, unfortunately, uh, only got a 30 plus percent success. And if you tell me I have a 30% chance of winning money in Vegas, I don't take a trip there. Uh, using the hard criteria on the QEG-driven protocol, we got a little over 60% success. And with those odds, I'll probably catch a flight to Vegas, which is a joke. I don't, I'm not a gambler. I, Vegas has no real attraction for me. So we're all gamblers <laughs> in a different way. I, I, I just, I, I roll my dice for, for a different thing. So well, that's it. yeah, I think we're all gamblers. Yeah. Whether you go to Vegas. Or so that. it looks like you've got some imaging uh, technology. Uh, associated yeah. Sorry with... to cause distractions back here. Uh, does this... It looks like that right frontal uh, area. There's got a little ding. Um, does, that, does that match what you're saying? What you, you did with your Laplacian? Yeah. Yeah. So Pretty that's much precisely. Yeah, I thought so. So yes, the linked ears is, is uh, there's some damage there with um, the uh, recording. And then I do look at the Laplacian and that's what, this is a neuro navigator uh, through NeuroGuide and Bob Thatcher. And uh, this is at the six Hertz frequency. So this, this sort of matches uh, when you said exactly. So I'm glad to hear that kind of what, what you were looking at. And the orange, so there's a little uh, key down at the bottom. Orange is between 1.65 and who knows, two, two uh, Z scores here. So it's kind of out of bounds, 10th percentile or something. So if I can get, are you ready to hear a little bit of the background data just to see if sure. this is kind sure. of what we're looking at here? So uh, this is actually a person who, uh, a female, who has a long history of depression and she has been treated with ECT many years ago. And uh, I did some neuropsych uh, testing with her recently, and it came out that she has some pretty significant working memory issues. She can't hold much information online in the moment. So in immediate situations, you know, let's say I'm giving her my phone number to write it down, 
she can't keep it in her mind long enough to find her paper and pen. So uh, certainly a lot of those kind of issues. And when you have uh, working memory, not only are you not able to keep <clears throat> information in mind, but it's, you know, if you can't do that, then you can't, you know, perform, you know, uh, complex operations. You can't, you know, do, I'll say mental math. Uh, you, you can't think through and sequence uh, what you're going to do. You, you can't. Um, so you, you're prone to being more reactive. And, you know, so we have a brain here that has poor impulse control, but this working memory issue kind of maybe doubles down on that. You know, if you can't imagine what you're going to do before you do it, you're just going to do what's right in front of you. So you're, you're kind of uh, uh, kind of limited. So you're more of a stimulus response kind of individual rather than a proactive uh, mature abstract thinking person. So um, uh, it's difficult to acquire new information. So that's kind of the bottom line there. And then therefore that's going to impact your memory systems. Um, overall though, her, her uh, storage is fine. I'm not seeing anything that looks like amnesia necessarily, but you know, again, poor intake of information. Uh, and you'd, you'd expect to see some, some left issues with, you know, we talk about depression and, and working memory, but there, there's all sorts of loops and parietal things that can get involved with, with your working memory. Her drawing, like I had her draw a complex figure. She has difficulty putting gestalt uh, around a figure. And I think that fits this pattern of right hemisphere disturbance. Executive functioning was was low. It took her a long, long time to think about what she was going to. I mean, same issue. Working memory disturbance took her a long time to think about what she needed to do. In 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 essence, kind of really uh, ineffective with problem solving in a, in a useful way. You know, to be independent and and do you know your daily living things. If you can't you know problem solve, you can't think about what you got to do. You got issues. There's moderate. Um, processing speed, but in the domain of uh, anterior cingulate. So that uh, the Stroop test, so I'm um, looking at the, the picture here, but the Stroop test is named the ink color instead of the word. And so it kind of causes the person to have to abort their uh, reactive response. I mean, your, your habit, so to speak, is to read, read words and not colors of the ink. And so you have to abort your, uh, you know, routine response to, to do novel things. And there's a switching and flexibility involved. And she certainly uh, scored low in those areas. Uh, and I think that's a long and short of a neuropsych findings. It's certainly difficulty with um, sustained attention and those kinds of things. But um, what, what's uh, kind of relevant about her, her current issues in life, you know, again, she has history of depression. There was some ECT there. Caused you know, in her her recollection in the family's report that the ECT probably bonked her uh, working memory. That, that's a common uh, thing that happens. Uh, the other thing she's had um, was TMS to try to help uh, depression, and that wasn't necessarily uh, terribly useful. Um, but but the thing that is is most disturbing her life right now is she is a type of individual who has uh, that kind of stereotypical home where uh, she's hoarding. She cannot throw something away. She cannot distinguish uh, importance versus non-importance. And, um, you know, she's had, you know, she's come to terms with that. And she, she kind of talks about it pretty freely because she knows, you know, knows she wants some help with that. And she's the person who uh, hired the, the company to come in and help her sort through things and, and, you know, let go of things and that. 
And that hasn't been real successful. And, and a lot of that is not her fault. There's a tr trouble with the company. But anyway, um, so yeah, so that's the biggest thing. She can't, you know, get going, can't do things, can't necessarily function. And her house is cluttered to a point that it, it's it's upsetting to her and her her family. So the impulse, so, so it's curious here with the impulsivity findings, you know, kind of how that plays into, and there's orbital frontal stuff probably in there, it looks like, uh, kind of this uh, ventral area is kind of disturbed. And, and so that, that's going to cut into your orbital frontal region, which, you know, has obsessive uh, characteristics, low motivation, which is what she um, presents with. And uh, so there's kind of a handful of things kind of going on at once. Uh, so, so Jay, now that you've got a little more background, do you, do you have other kind of things that would kind of fit into this? Well, the working memory fits really well. Frontal lobe is in, uh, involved in working memory. Um, uh, and depression is a balance between the right and left frontal lobe and having one side not working ends up throwing that balance off. Unfortunately, ECT uh, is not always therapeutically benign. As you pointed out, quite often uh, people end up with memory issues from it. Um, having worked at a state hospital back when that was a, a rather active practice, um, uh, I know patients that lost critical skills. Uh, there was a, a gentleman who played the piano and he, he was a chronic person at the state hospital, uh, but everybody on the ward loved his piano playing. You know, he, he was quite good, a uh, concert pianist level uh, piano player. Uh, they did a series of ECT. He forgot entirely how to play the piano, uh, which was tragic because mm -hmm. I mean, he, he, was, he lifted the mood of the entire ward and uh, everybody was kind of bummed after that. Uh, it, it, the, the working memory uh, is obviously frontal. The other thing is uh, right frontal is um, uh, sometimes more difficult to identify symptomatically. People tend to have um, a neglect phenomenon with right hemispheric uh, strokes and right hemispheric vascular problems. You know, if, if you lose words, it's pretty obvious. But if you lose the ability to judge emotion or spatial orientation, th those are a lot harder to end up identifying. Uh, the right frontal area is really quite obvious in your graphics. Um, the uh, uh, Loretta image in the upper left has the red dot basically all over the, the spot that's uh, uh, found in the imaging that I did. The software I've got can also do Loretta. I just mm -hmm. tossed up the simple maps, not sure, knowing how, course, yeah. how much Thanks. we were going to do on the case. Of course. Yeah. And maybe this is more than people were, were expecting, but um, hey, Skip, uh, I'm going to jump, have you jump in here. Yeah. Can you explain the uh, novelty routinization principle and what we would expect given this? Any, yeah. any good politician, I'm going to get you to answer what I want you to answer and not answer any questions, right? Okay, um, it, it, So here's what I was wondering, and I'll, and I'll come back because I, I, I think what you're asking is kind of tied up in here too, um, but without any images, right? So maybe folks just listening. The, the, the hoarding thing is like it's it's tantalizing for people right they make shows about it i don't know if they have them over where you are sarah but there's you know yeah. there's a show called hoarders and all that good stuff um so there's there's something about it that i think is intriguing but we're talking about a compulsion right so with with all, you know and this person you're describing is, as, as you said you know a handful of things going on 
uh, perfect storm scenario, uh, unfortunately, right? But are we talking, and, and this is to Jay and, and you, Laura, and Sarah, too, with the cingulate as the gating system, if you will, and, and, and I don't mean, you know, subcortical area gating system, but just kind of taking in information and doing something with it. Is that what we're talking about generally when we're looking at compulsions? It does it does it tend to point towards the the cingulate anterior area yeah. when, when we have compulsions? Yeah. Yes, uh, obsessive compulsive issues are anterior cingulate, and okay. um, the uh, but you can uh, the anterior cingulate gives you emotional and cognitive flexibility, and when it's not working, if you're locked on you have OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, or oppositional defiance. You're, you're locked onto something. Um, but if you're locked off, you have a motivation, lack of initiation, and in its logical extreme, uh, akinetic mutism. And uh, the, uh, so you can be locked on or off depending upon the failure uh, of the anterior cingulate. But its, it's normal uh, function is to give you emotional and cognitive flexibility. When it's not working, you can't predict exactly whether it's not, uh, essentially you, you can't predict just by looking at the anterior cingulate feature, whether it's locked on or off, you can just say that the anterior cingulate has failed. Uh, there's three failure modes of the anterior cingulate. You can have alpha, in which case there's a high probability that an SSRI or SNRI will end up being useful. But if it's a slow pattern, which generally in the theta band, but it's rhythmic slow activity, it's medication resistant to traditional medications. There's some evidence that ketamine or dissociative uh, uh, drugs like psilocybin may end up helping with that. But if it's a beta pattern, the traditional medical approaches, the SSRIs, and uh, they, they will give you not only a lack of response, but you'll have a negative response to it. Uh, we, we've got uh, lots of experience. Um, at this point, I've got a little bit of uh, imagery uh, available here. I popped up Loretta, and you can see that the mm. maximum deviation is off on the right side. But look at the anterior cingulate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the cognitive division, okay. not the affective division underneath, yeah, look at but that. the cognitive division. Uh, mm -hmm. We've got uh, somebody with a, a cingulate that's not working. And a little bit of a left frontal, which is probably the depressive presentation. There you go. That's uh -huh. simply the source of this number one component. Mm -hmm. I did a component analysis of the EG. 17% of the EG variability is predicted by that failure of the right frontal area that was seen in the spectra. But again, when you do the uh, uh, analysis of where that's coming from, uh, you can see uh, that the... Uh, negative impact on uh, anterior cingulate. You can see uh, uh, also the uh, lateral, front, uh, lateral frontal and mid uh, frontal area here responsible for uh, the, usually the depression. Now, the <clears throat> left frontal is the target for TMS, but you know um, there are people where the left frontal TMS uh, ends up needing right side training as well. This would probably require uh, anterior cingulate OCD related TMS as well. Uh, they could treat the depression left frontally, but they'd have to deal with the anterior cingulate uh, for the OCD. This is again the 
the dominant target. This is uh, obviously, uh, if you s- some people look at this and they see the red dot and they think that's the source, but um, the hot and cold are opposite ends, like a magnet flux at one end, north and south pole. You have polarity, different colors of the polarity. And the Loretta basically shows this as uh, a spot there as well. But, you know, Loretta's supposed to be low resolution. And this is jump to absolute extreme, which overfocuses it. Um, and I always change that slightly. I'm going to force the midline on the display. You're going to see that the anterior singlet starts to light up a little bit here uh, as, as we uh, uh, expand this a touch. So anterior singlet, right frontal. So the number one component was 17%. This one's another 11. Uh, so, you know, uh, 28, 29, almost a third of the EEG uh, in those top two components. This is the kind of stuff I do all day long. I just play with data. It's uh, really quite fun. The <laughs> insula on the right side seems to have a little bit of an involvement as well. And uh, that, that's a little bit more problematic for psychiatric uh, uh, presentations. Uh, insula can end up having uh, visceral pain and autonomic disturbances, but it also can end up having delusions and hallucinations and uh, psychiatric uh, disturbances. So a little concern over that right frontal area, including the insula. And so with the insula, that, that can play into um, kind of uh, difficulty with, with um, a salience network, right? That, you know, what's, imp- back to the OCD maybe, you know, what's important, what's not important, or, or not being able to, quote, see the, the stuff around her and it doesn't register as, boy, I, you know, this is a problem. She knows cognitively it's a problem, but, but in terms of kind of connecting it with you know, her, her internal state and, and the actual environment, I can see we're having the insula issue uh, it can also make things difficult for her. Yeah. Well, in, in general, with the left to right novelty routinization question that you had, mm-hmm. it fits with that too, with the right generally being associated with, you know, novelty detection or, you know, stimulus-based characteristics or new stuff or things that are important to guide your behavior and backing up in your description of her. She has difficulty doing that. We were talking about it through working memory, you know, terms, but if you can't see the stuff that's popping up in front of you so that you can react to it, it doesn't mean visually you can't see it, right? It's just not recorded in your consciousness and, and giving you something to react to then you're bound to either routine or your environment, right? You're going to, yeah. you're going to stop at the big stuff, right? You're going to stop when you know, your house is on fire because all the stuff's in it, not because it's piling up. Right. Yeah. So the interesting other part of her history I didn't mention is that uh, in her uh, earlier years, um, she was actually a manager of a business office. So she was organized in the yes. OCD as a more recent uh, wow. uh, thing. So yeah, she was not OCD as a young, well, maybe to the degree that it's good to be OCD if you want to be organized. So I mean, there's a Goldilocks sweet spot with that, but um, this is all uh, obviously rel- relatively new. And I think she kind of dated it since the ECT. Well, she had ECT, she had a problem, but but uh, the, the 
the hoarding and, and cluttering is uh, relatively. So it's it's important to actually look at the EG before you go to the analytics and make sure you've got the montage correct so you end up with everything being ascribed to the right spot. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Sarah doesn't work with seniors who've had vascular events or whatever is going on here, but uh, uh, do you use maps and quantitative processing uh, with, with your clients at all, or are you symptom-driven in your practice? No, we were very fortunate to have a, a team at Mind Media. We did a, I wanted, well, when I first did the training, I wanted a 19 lead. <laughs> I was like, oh, I want one of them, because that's going to give more answers. Um, but we started off with the Nexus 10 and uh, John Anderson's new queue. Um, and then we were fortunate about six months ago to be able to negotiate to get a, uh, the Nexus 32. Mind Media that does Nexus is right there uh, where you were at that uh, earlier in the Netherlands. So it's kind of buying a hometown uh, uh, device, <laughs> which, you know, I can understand hometown loyalty. So, uh, <laughs> And the Nexus is really quite a good device, uh, very, very high. Well, it's not cheap. Uh, that's for sure. It's a relatively expensive device, but um, it, it, it's very high quality. Um, the, their frequency response and linearity is really quite astounding. So that's mm. one of the better quality amplifiers yeah. that are out there. It, it I'm sorry. Go ahead, Sarah. I'm sorry. No, it, made, it made such a difference. I think really around, I mean, I'm working with a three-year-old little girl at the minute and the difference from being able to do that and get the information, I'd done th uh, had therapy to start and uh, in utero trauma and trauma to the age of two. And uh, just the difference in this little girl, all the stuff that we're talking about today and uh, how she's changed, she's now able to self-regulate. She's, you know, and even at three, you know, self-regulation isn't something that the child has fully evolved into, you know, being able to self-regulate, but how she was acting out due to the trauma, which was separate from a developmental age and stage, is just massive, you know, um, and the distress and the night terrors and all of those things, which we wouldn't have had that information. I mean, she was amazing to just be able to do the 19 lead. We got a few minutes, but we got to analyze with Mary of what was happening for this little girl um, and being able to do a protocol that that is, is just changed for her and her mom and her brothers, you know. Um, but equally, my oldest client's 86. So I've used, I've been able to look at a lot of the raw data. I love looking at the raw data, to be honest, because it's a little bit like I've, I start to see patterns. I start to see little things that just, you just see it. It's a, it's a weird sort of process. It's a little, somebody sends you one of those things on your phone, find the little dog in amongst the thousand cats. It's like that. You just start to notice these features, which I really love about it. So I'm very much like, Jay, really got to analyze the raw data before we show pretty pictures, which is obviously <laughs> the parents can have the pretty pictures. Can I, can, and the children love it. They want to see their brains. They want to see the pretty pictures. So, um, and I'm all for that with children, you know, bringing them, having that understanding of their brain and the muddles and how can we support them to get to where they want to be. And certainly peak performance as well. Uh, Jay was talking about athletes and stuff like that. And I'm working with a young boy who's a potential British swimmer at the minute and um, working memory issues. And actually his performance in his swimming has increased through his 
neurofeedback as well. So that's a, a double for him. You work with ADD as well. And yes. uh, there's so many kinds of patterns in ADD. It's, it's not one cluster of people. Uh, about 20% of the ADD population have epileptiform discharges in their EG, even though they have no history of seizure at all. And uh, if you don't look at the EG and you don't realize that there's actually a, an epileptiform discharge, you may give them the wrong kind of medication if you're a physician prescribing, or you may end up doing beta training on top of a discharge area, which isn't a good move if you don't know what's there. So uh, uh, looking at the EG is important. Theta is a very common pattern in ADD kids, but frontal central theta is a methylphenidate or Ritalin match, uh, but slow alpha in the back of the head can be seen in ADD as well. And then amphetamines, Vyvanse or Adderall are a good match. Some people have beta spindles up front. That's a clonidine or Intunov-10x match. There, you know, different medications match up with different uh, EEG patterns for the ADD population. So uh, um, I, I uh, strongly urge people who are working with ADD just symptomatically to start looking at the EEG uh, to, to try to cluster your patients into different groups because they respond to the same therapy, whether it's neurofeedback protocol or medication, the EEG uh, phenotypes end up clustering you into a group that ends up responding to the same underlying treatment. Hey, you know, I'm yeah, sorry. That was my reason for wanting to get the 90V, just to give that evidence. So, so keep interrupting you, Sarah. So I apologize. Oh, sorry. You know, and I'm sorry, we're, we're running short on time here. And I was hoping to kind of circle back on, on my case just to kind of close it out. And maybe I was just actually thinking is maybe we can kind of follow her through over time. And, uh, you know, if she wants to have some neurofeedback, I'd be curious kind of, uh, you know, how, how that would work and maybe I could report back about her. But I had two, two sh very short questions uh, for, for Jane, <clears throat> kind of what he thinks about this. Um, uh, number one was, if, if we could uh, speak specifically about what training again would be useful for her, should we do neurofeedback? And then the other question was just kind of a general thing about what about her record do you think a vascular event? Uh, take a peek at the uh, raw EEG here for a moment. This is the raw EEG, again, from the front to the back of the head. And as we're scrolling through the raw EEG, uh, you might notice that there's a rhythmic pattern here at the F8 electrode location. Yep. I'm going to drop that down and set it on the temporal oh, electrode. Yeah, wow. If that's not the same data, yeah. I'll eat my hat. Well, I don't have a hat, but uh, you know, pick, pick out a hat, I'll eat it. Um, we've got uh, localized slow alpha, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven hertz. Yep. And that slow alpha in that location is out of phase with respect to CZ. Mm -hmm. You notice that CZ is going up yep. while that's going down. They're a mirror image of each other. Yeah. Uh, so that's a great montage, CZ to uh, the right temporal or FC to the right uh, frontal, uh, again, out of phase. Mm -hmm. uh, when you pick two uh, features that are out of phase, they add up to give you a gigantic wave. Um, you'll also, uh, uh, as we 
uh, scroll through the data set, uh, uh, notice that that rhythmic activity pops up again and again and again. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll notice the beta content in the EEG. The beta content in the EEG probably uh, explains to a certain extent uh, why there was a depression. Right, left frontal alpha is a subdominance of the left frontal. Beta on the right is a dominance of the right. And again, it's always a balance. The beta on the right was probably why uh, the left frontal TMS didn't in fact work. Um, uh, you, you've got to actually hit the nail on the head. And when it's, when it's a different nail, not the one you thought it was, uh, mm -hmm. you're whacking around on, on, uh, on the head without a, a real target there. So the, the right frontal and right temporal feature are really quite distinct. Now, mm -hmm. to the extent that she's agitated at all, uh, CZ to yes. the right temporal SMR type training can work very nicely for stabilization. And SMR training also helps with excess fast activity for stabilization. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the EG has... Um, uh, 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 lots of targets, uh, but CZ to the right temporal would give us stabilization and FZ to the right frontal suppressed training will help with the uh, finding here and counterbalance suppressed training frontally is gently stimulating. It'll counterbalance any SMR overshoot. If you train mm -hmm. SMR to its logical extreme, the person get, can become a little bit sedated or uh, under aroused. So uh, hyper stable. And uh, you need to counterbalance the SMR uh, with the either suppress or uh, beta training frontally. Uh, and Lubar was doing that back in the late 80s, early 90s, FC, beta, CC, SMR. We, we have a little montage change here based on the data set, but the, the approach is, is you know, old fashioned. Now, there are people that would simply turn Z-scores loose on this. Mm -hmm. um, the, the excess right frontotemporal uh, slow alpha is a big outlier and it's an abnormality. Uh, uh, Z-score training targets abnormal things really quite well, but you have to be cautious because a Z-score outlier can also be a special skill or a compensatory mechanism. So you need to be thoughtful. It has to be an abnormal feature that you're targeting, not a compensatory mechanism. Uh, like an excess of SMR and somebody who's got an instability. The SMR excess is actually a compensatory mechanism. If you extinguished it, they'd get worse, not better. So you, you have to know what you're doing with it. Uh, Z-score training could target this very nicely uh, because it is an abnormality. Um, uh, so there, there's lots of training approaches. Um, the, the old uh, the old saying, you know, I, I grew up in farm country and uh, uh, used to drive bulldozer and so they call that skinning a cat, driving a bulldozer. Uh, so the term there's more than one way to skin a cat doesn't mean they're, they have kitties with a, with a knife. It's it, uh, skinning a cat's driving a bulldozer. Um, so there's lots of ways to come up with a protocol here. There's more than one way to skin this cat. We've got uh, the right frontal, uh, central, simple training, uh, one or two channel devices can, can suffice, or Z-score training where you need uh, multi-channel uh, and uh, you need the database and so forth. So it's more expensive, a little bit more uh, um, uh, technical, uh, but uh, you know, they're, they're just two different ways to approach the same puzzle. Uh, 
and uh, in, in this circumstance, Z-score training to suppress this finding would end up being a good approach. Thank you. Dr. Laura, you good? I am good. Thank you. No, that, that's, this is fantastic. And, and uh, you know, again, it's the maiden voyage here. So we're, we're trying to, uh, you know, think about the right um, way to, you know, talk about this information. I don't know that we did it, or I, I personally did as well to uh, kind of bring this uh, level of, you know, the, the clients and the average Joe and, and understanding things. But I, I think we can, you know, I, th I think a patient will listen to this and maybe be, you know, a little, um, uh, I don't know, kind of overwhelmed maybe by the, the technical jargon, but, you know, hopefully we're, you know, giving, giving the presentation that we, that, that there's a lot of science involved, a lot of, you know, understanding about electronics, a lot of understanding about um, brain functioning. And, you know, it's more than, you know, we're going to sit in our lazy boy, we're going to plug you in like a lamp. I mean, there's, there's a uh, uh, multi-levels to this, you know, from what Jay's saying there, you know, there's hope like, Hey, you know what, maybe you don't understand everything we're saying, but look, there, there's ways to adjust things. We can absolutely validate. I, I think what this is going to do for the patient is just kind of validate that she's been to every, you know, expert, you know, quote expert in, in the uh, area. And they say, she's, there's nothing. I can't help you. You know, we, we did your TMS didn't work, you know, et cetera. And uh, I think this can bring hope to people who, um, you know, I've tried everything else. Like, hey, here's another way of looking at it and look at the organ that, that has the issue rather than, you know, just talking theoretically. TMS is in its infancy. Uh, I think their clinical society is in their seventh year. And it was their uh, fourth annual meeting when they decided that uh, they need to actually account for the size of the head. Uh, so, you know, if they're there, uh, I, I'm again. I'm from farm country. I, I describe it as still trying to find your butt with both hands. You know, they're, they're they're they have a powerful technique, but they're brand new with it. And uh, if I handed you a, a brand new hammer and we didn't know what kind of hammer it was, you'd have to pound around with it before you figured out is this a claw hammer intended to pull things out or a framing hammer intended to smash your thumb, a sledgehammer, a tack hammer. Uh, eventually you'd know what you're using as a tool. And TMS is a brand new tool. They're still pounding with it. Some people have figured it out better than others, uh, but it's still fairly new the people who are using only standard protocols with no assessment of the patient other than their diagnosis, the DSM uh, categorization, you know, their, their efficacy is just a little bit above placebo. Uh, people that know what they're doing and can actually look at the brain before they target something actually have a much better outcome. Uh, they can actually get their percent outcome well up above 60% outcome instead of barely above 40% outcome in the, the validation studies that were standard protocol based on DSM. TMS, I mean, you're actually zapping neurofeedback. We're not zapping anything, right? I mean, it's... TMS is using a 1.5 to 3 Tesla magnet to create a pulse, which can make you wiggle your fingers if they're pointing mm -hmm. it at the spot that runs your fingers makes you wiggle your toes if they're pointing at the toes. Uh, they can actually induce currents in the brain. Uh, pulsed EMF is done uh, that can't induce a current, but it can potentiate function. Uh, and then obviously neurofeedback just trains you to do it yourself as opposed to doing something to you. Uh, 
neurofeedback allows you to do it to yourself, your, your uh, self-regulation, as opposed to having a treatment. It's a training you do for yourself as opposed to a treatment that's done to you. And, you know, there are people that aren't really ready to do it for themselves. They're too disabled or disturbed in, in function in some way. And there are times when you end up having to match treatment and training, uh, but they go together very well. Uh, there's times that you need to unstick them with a treatment and then train them with the neurofeedback. And that pairing works really quite well. Uh, uh, some people are a little too stuck just for the training itself. I'm not up for my fingers wiggling. <laughs> yes, Dr. Lerner. Yeah. W- would you recommend, Jay, that if someone's going for TMS, that they do a, a pre-test uh, with a QEEG? In fact, that's what we suggest. Now, it's not the standard of practice. The standard of practice for TMS is that the psychiatrist gives you the diagnosis of depression or OCD. The two things are approved for treatment. And at that point, they have standard protocols as to where to point the magnet and how to operate it. Um, And if you're DSM-based, they might have made the right guess, but they might not have. I mean, it's just story-based diagnosis as opposed to a a biomarker or a neuromarker. Uh, What we found that... uh, uh, Neurostar is the first one to get FDA approval in the U.S. They use a 10 hertz pulse for the left frontal area. And if you're, they say it's stimulating. Some of the times it stimulates, some of the times it doesn't. If your alpha is slower than 10, it'll stimulate. If your alpha is faster than 10, it won't. So if you know the EEG beforehand, you can reset the frequency it's pulsing at so you can actually excite the area appropriately. Uh, It also tells you whether um, this is right frontal beta versus left frontal alpha, and they both look the same clinically. If it's right frontal beta, you do one hertz on the right instead of 10 hertz or faster on the left. So if you look at the EG, you get guidance. If you don't look at the EG, you're shooting blind. I don't like shooting blind when my fingers are wiggling and somebody's got a <laughs> device to my head. That's just the non-clinical guy talking. Guys, can we, can we start to uh, wrap her up here? Because Sarah Sarah's going to be, be getting tired here. It's getting late over there. No, Sarah, I've been listening Sarah, to you all, all night. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been lovely. Very gracious, so uh, uh, allowing us to chat about uh, uh, things other than just your practice as well. Uh, ho- hopefully, it was entertaining for you as well. What's the best way for our uh, listeners to uh, learn a little bit more uh, about your program there, Sarah? What, what's your website? Yeah, they can go to our website at www.changingmindswithpickupapenny.co.uk and find out about what we're doing over here in the UK. And it's not just a penny. A penny is something different over there, isn't it? I'm just... Is yours a dime? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. We're all going to hit okay. Google after this. See how my video editing is. Thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. Dr. Laura can be found at jansons.com. Dr. Skip can be found at drskiprin.com. Jay Gunkelman, well, there's only one Jay Gunkelman on Google. And we're going to see a lot more of them on our, our YouTube channel. Idea for a topic, especially... Uh, with this one, give us some feedback. Hey, what did you like? What didn't you like? We're trying to figure this thing out without doing TMS, but uh, oh, wait, my finger's wiggling. 
Please email Pete at neuronoodle.com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Cue the copyrighted music. <laughs>